Hi there, this is Dan Martin of MFA for uh, Next Generation Waterfronts um, and ASPN uh, podcast. I have a great guest today, Doug Marcy. Doug is from the National Oceanographic and Atmospheric Administration, or also known as NOAA, one of the few federal agencies we can actually pronounce. Um, and uh, Doug, if, if you want to take a minute to, to introduce yourself and, uh, you know, well, what, what, uh, what you do at NOAA, what NOAA does, and, um, and uh, what you'd like to talk about today. Okay, sure. Thank you, Dan. Thanks for having me on today. Um, yeah, I am Doug Marcy, um, again with uh, NOAA. Uh, NOAA, the National Oceanic Atmospheric Administration, is a pretty diverse agency. There's a lot of different parts of NOAA. Uh, we do a lot of different things. Um, you may be familiar with uh, parts of NOAA that do uh, hurricane forecasting or weather forecasting. That's the National Weather Service. There's already part of NOAA, another part that does fisheries management, fisheries service. There's parts that do the satellites. Um, and we are actually part of, uh, my office is part of the National Ocean Service. And with the uh, uh, Office for Coastal Management, um, acronym is OCM. And um, <clears throat> we're basically uh, the nation's coastal management agency. We oversee uh, the National Coastal Zone Management Program, National Estuarine Research Reserves, the NOAA Coral Reef Conservation Program, and a program called Digital Coast, which I'll touch on a lot today with you. Um, I've been with NOAA for about going on almost 18 years now, uh, and I'm a coastal hazards specialist. I focus on uh, uh, coastal hazard issues, any type of inundation and flooding specifically coastal flooding uh, and sea level rise. And um, we also specialize in geographic information systems and data that support doing mapping of, of coastal flooding uh, that communities can use. So, uh, and, and with that, I think we're gonna get into today some discussion about some of our, some of our foundational data sets that are used uh, to determine coastal flood risk around the country. and. Um, and I look forward to talking more about that and some of the tools and data that that we provide uh, to the public. And and for for my part, our conversation is is almost a third in a series. And the first conversation I had that sort of provoked a few issues in my mind on next gen waterfronts, and I believe it's still available there, is with uh, my former colleague um, at another firm, uh, Greg Corey. And that conversation was about. Why are still still people still getting thirty-year mortgages in Florida? And that seems like a, a silly question in a lot of ways because if if you look at Florida today, it looks fine. And if you're a skeptic, you might think, well, it won't be a problem thirty years either. But I got a few answers out of that conversation with Greg that were kind of fascinating. One was that the reason why people are still getting thirty-year mortgages in Florida is that is that the mortgage may run for 30 years, but on average mortgages in Florida run about five years. So nobody really expects that they're putting up a third, a 30 year risk when they sign somebody up for a mortgage. In fact, what they're expecting is that within a small number of years, it'll, it'll, um, it, it, the, the mortgage will be paid off, the deal will be done. And 30 years is just a convenient time to, uh, to uh, amortize a, a property value over. So it was kind of an interesting twist to me to realize that the reason why so much is still going on in, 
And it's not just Florida. In a lot of flood-prone or other areas that you might sort of scratch your head and say, hey, wait, wait, isn't this going to be inundated or aren't we going to have problems here in the future? Mm-hmm. The reason is, is is that the market is okay with it because for the most part, everyone involved in the market has short-term objectives. The second story, that uh, the second part, podcast that I did was another one about a month, I'm going to say a month and a half ago now, um, with Mary Ludgan of Heitman Financial. And she has, if I recall, something like $24 billion under management in properties. And she is using models to look at the risk associated with those properties um, based on uh, climate risk. Uh, and, uh, and, and so that seemed kind of sensible because they have a much long, longer term holding period. They're not looking forward to five years of ownership. They might be looking uh, for, you know, life of property ownership. Um, they're not, uh, they're not thinking about, um, you know, getting out in five years as a result, they want to know that their value is going to be there for a long time. So Mary is now in the process, I think of looking at some of her properties and maybe unloading them and looking at new properties as they come in for risk. So that brings me to, to you, Doug, because I thought, wow, what are, what are the tools that NOAA has um, that are open to the public and or generally available somehow? Uh, who's using them to, to figure out what sort of risks might come with coastal development and, uh, and, and, how, um, and how, can, how can people who are listening to this podcast access some of them uh, to get a sense of uh, some of what's expected to happen to their properties. How can they get that, that info too? And with that, I'm going to shut up and let you talk. Okay. Yeah. Um, the, um, the, there are more and more people um, and, and communities, coastal communities, especially that are um, becoming aware of the, the, the things are changing. They've seen it. They're changing. It's changing in their lifetime. They're starting to see, um, High tides come up farther than they used to. Uh, we're starting to see. Uh, th- it seems like these storms we're having are affecting things, you know, worse than they did back in, the, let's say, the '60s or so. Um, and and I think people are are getting more aware um, that are moving to the coast. They're becoming more educated. That hey, there. I want to know what the flood risk is. Um, if I before I buy a property, like like you were mentioning for a thirty-year mortgage, and granted, you're, you're probably right. Most people don't stay in a house that long. Um, but uh, you know, and there's different laws out there about what you know, <clears throat> what uh, information a homeowner has to disclose in terms of the flood risk, and not always, not always a hundred percent transparent. Um, so there, people are asking more and more. You know, I, I want to be able to understand my risk, and and so where are they going for that information? Um, they, one of the, there's a lot of fundamental data sets that have to be uh, collected and used to determine, let's say, a flood risk, the current flood risk, not just in the future, but what's going on now, uh, but then looking at projections of what, what's going to happen in the future. Um, and some of those data sets, um, you know, provided some by NOAA, some by other agencies within the federal government. Uh, some of the states uh, are, are are doing the same thing. They're bringing, there's some you know, critical data sets that are being used. For instance, uh, the, a lot of the coastal zone management programs in the states, there's, there's 34 of them uh, that are federally funded and approved programs. And they collect data about their erosion rates, uh, long-term erosion rates to try to uh, govern things like sea, uh, setback uh, lines where um, they try to regulate development and kind of promote like a retreat policy if 
structures get damaged, they can potentially move back uh, when they re redevelop so that they can get out of that, that erosion zone. But some of the key data sets that, that NOAA I can speak to provide are um, you really have to know what the elevation of the land is uh, along the coast to be able to accurately depict what the flood impact is going to be. So um, it may sound silly, well, I should be able to know what the elevation of the land is, but um, you have to use what's called geodetic control. And there's a part of NOAA actually in the Ocean Service called the National Geodetic Survey. Um, they've been around for 200 years mapping. Initially, they did the mapping of the coasts back 200 years ago under Thomas Jefferson. The uh, Coast and Geodetic Survey, it was back then, mapping the coast. And we started putting in um, what we call monumentation or benchmarks to, to into the earth, little round disks that say, okay, on this at this spot is a certain elevation. And then over time, we've tied together this whole network across the country called the National uh, Spatial Reference System. Um, and that's the kind of a framework data set we have to rely on to tie into uh, to figure out what building heights need to be and, and what flood elevations, base flood elevations need to be. And, um, and constantly improving that network. Matter of fact, they're working on a new uh, datum coming out soon that will be more based on actual gravity measurements. Um, what we, we try to do is simulate what, what how water is going to flow when you put a drop of water on the ground, um, try to simulate that in a model um, so we can, what's called an equal potential surface. You want to get that as accurate as possible. So gravitational data goes into that. Uh, these benchmarks are used, and then that enables us to figure out at a certain spot on the ground, what is the elevation? If we know that, then we can do water level projections on top of that. Another part of NOAA does water level monitoring. Uh, the Center for Operational uh, Oceanographic Products and Services, co-ops, we call them, or tides and water level folks. You can go Google tides and water levels, and that'll come up. They maintain the National Water uh, Level Observation Network, and these are tide gauges around the country that monitor water levels on our coast over time so that we can develop what, what are called tidal datums. Um, you may have heard things like mean higher high water or mean lower low water. The reason we have to do that is for navigation. That's our mandate. Um, so we have to put on a, a NOAA nautical chart. You may be familiar with some of the nautical charts if you're a boater. Uh, the lowest possible water elevation in there so that ships don't, don't run aground. Hey, let, let me let me stop you there for a second, uh, Doug. Um, two two things before we leave the um, the monument uh, example that you were given and the detail there. Um, the the reason we want to know how high the land is at a monument is is I, I would imagine in part to to know when subsistence is happening to know the value of that data point anyhow. Uh, but but also it, it also helps tell you where. Um, uh, you know where the water water that drops on that monument is going to go, and how, how how deep it can go based on what you project it could be. Is that a way to put it, or is there another way to talk about how will the monument work? So this this network of, of benchmarks, um, again, I, it kind of ties into a, a whole framework of them. What that does is when we're collecting information about the elevation of the land. It used to be we used survey uh, survey instruments to do that, a rod and level surveying, or we used to actually use uh, aerial photography and, and do 3D stereo pairs. But now we're using technology uh, 
that's collected collecting elevation data from what's called remote sensing, which is um, an example of that is something called LIDAR, light detection and raging. It's um, a technology where there's a, a laser installed on the bottom of an aircraft and it basically sends a, a laser pulse down to the ground and it measures the, the return pulse, the amount of light that comes back to the sensor. And then we can figure out based on the wavelength of the light and the speed of light and everything, we can figure out the elevation. And we know where the plane is because of GPS. We can figure out that elevation. Then we tie that in elevation because that's based on satellite information. We have to tie that back to the ground surface. So we have ground control points that basically tie that elevation to what we know is going on on the ground. And then we can develop what's called a digital elevation model or DEM of the ground surface. And that is the fundamental data set we use to do flood mapping. So we, if we have a model if you will, of the ground surface that we know is tied in and we know is accurate. When we project water levels on top of that, we can essentially subtract the two surfaces and come up with what is the area that's going to flood and the depth of what's going to flood. And so that's tied into known elevations that you can then go back and say, okay, for this flood map, for instance, that FEMA puts out, National Flood Insurance Program, um, flood insurance rate maps will have an area on there that shows this is the 1% chance or the 100-year flood, and here's the base flood elevation, and it'll be a number like 11 feet or something like that. And so we know what that 11 is because we know what the ground elevation is. We know what the water height is, and that ties into people's uh, the, the first floor elevation of their home. Are they above or below that base flood elevation based on their elevation certificate? And they can figure out insurance rates based on that. And then new development can make sure they're above the base flood elevation so they get the lower insurance premiums. And that's supposed, the idea is that actually makes them more resilient to future flooding because they're they're elevating their their building uh, and they're making the lower floor or you know underneath the structure be able to have breakaway walls so they won't be impacted so much by flooding and also get the utilities up higher so your air conditioning unit and things don't get don't get flooded out with salt water. So that's all part of that, all that, goes back to is making sure you get the right um, the right data there uh, at, the, at the elevations and then the water levels as I was mentioning before that's in a tidal datum so you have to have transformation software I won't get into the details to be able to go back and forth between what's a tidal datum because tides and sea level rise that's all happening locally there's a lot of uh, yes there's global sea level rise but relative sea level rise is, is, is happening that's due to things like you mentioned subsidence is going on. So those benchmarks we talked about, those can be used to determine how fast the land is actually sinking. You have to factor that into how and into sea level. Sea level's going up, but yeah, the land's sinking too. So we have to factor that in for sea level projections. And that's all done um, locally as well. So going back and forth between these datums, we have software that enables folks like myself and, and other folks that work on this problem with GIS able to convert back and forth and, and do it correctly so that we show the, uh, the impacts and that we have certainty, uh, more certainty on, on the impacts. Now, the, the, the data sets that people could access, I have down here uh, HTTPS, um, uh, the usual colon back uh, forward slash forward slash tidesandcurrents.noaa.gov. Um, backslash again, uh, forward slash, I'm sorry. Uh, you, I think, gave another website too? Sure. That Yep. The Tides and Currents, that's uh, that's our 
um, the folks that do all of the uh, water level monitoring, um, but also there's a ton of information on their site. They they provide uh, uh, all of the sea level trend information. So if you if, even if you just Google sea level trend, you can get all of the the areas where we have greater than 30 years of of tide data. Um, we we do sea level projections, um, not projections. They, sea level, what's happened in the past, the trend, and that is uh, in, that takes into account subsidence as well. The other data sets um, I was talking about, elevation data, we provide on digital coast. And if you go to it's coast 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 um, that's our our uh, office homepage, and you can find it from there. It's uh, there's a link on there for digital coast. Uh, we also provide a lot of data, not only elevation data from that LIDAR I was mentioning before. Um, we host a lot of elevation data, um, particularly through other agencies like the Corps of Engineers, through some partnerships. And we work internet. We work with a lot of agencies on something called a three-dimensional elevation program, 3DEP. That's uh, led by the USGS, uh, but we're, there's a partnership with a lot of agencies and we coordinate the collection of elevation data so that we don't duplicate effort. And um, we we put out uh, using uh, federal funding, we partner with local uh, like communities and counties or states to uh, for areas where there, there's a need for new data. Um, so that's all done through that coordination. So we have that data on there. We have land cover data. Um, we provide the coastal equivalent of the national land cover data set called CCAP. It's a, coastal change analysis program and that looks at land cover over time so you can compare let's say 10 years ago to now and see how the land cover has actually changed how much has been developed land, land covers land covers a it sounds like a term of art what does land cover mean land cover there's a, there's 16 different classes it's just basically uh what is literally what is covering the land so it, it uses uh, imagery uh, and the product is at a 30 meter resolution, but we're actually working on higher resolution versions now down to like five meters. But it basically says, okay, for that little spot on the land, what what is covering it? So it's like either vegetation, if it's vegetation, what type? Is it like shrub? Is it, uh, is it emergent palustrine wetland? Or is it, you know, is it a um, open water? And then you will have, is it a freshwater or is it saltwater? Is it wetland? Uh, is it uh, upland forest or is it, let's say, grassland or is it high-density development or medium-density development? So it gives you an idea of what is occupying that particular spot. And that can it's a very important data set because you can use it for uh, determining impervious surface. Yeah, I can see so, that. Yeah, so where you're running hydrology models to figure out how much uh, rainfall and runoff is going to occur in a watershed, you got to know what your uh, land cover is what, so that you can figure out the amount of water that's going to come off that. Well, in a, in a weird sort of way, you can also project more areas that are more vulnerable to erosion as well. One one thing that one thing that really intrigued me back going back a couple of paragraphs was um, your point about uh, about the properties that are on the coast themselves, uh, and if the coastline changes, uh, then they may have to be moved back. Um, I'm actually familiar with a number of properties in the Carolinas that have had to be taken down because uh, given the size of their lot, there was just no way, uh, you know, with the setback requirements on all sides, 
that they could be rebuilt unless it was to be rebuilt as one room, 15 stories tall or something. Uh, so, so yeah, maybe there's a fire pole in the middle. There. Uh, so that, that would, that would be kind of a, a critical thing for people, I think, to be able to get a sense as to how far back, because I think it's human nature to want to get as close as possible to the water. But if you have, you know, data that says, uh, hey, you know, if it's a 65 foot setback, you might want to go with 85 feet simply because over time uh, that setback is going to is going to disappear into the water. Um, is 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 that a particular what, what data set would you recommend somebody would look at to have that kind of assurance? And it also may say something about what the depth of lots might need to be, uh, because if people want to rebuild, well, they've got to go further back. Yeah, that's a it's a good point. And um, through most of the uh, through the coastal zone management programs, I mentioned that before. There's there's 34 states that are that are approved programs. They a lot of them, and now they're all different because you know each state kind of has does their own thing. Um, but a lot of them do have a setback uh, requirement, and and they calculate it kind of a couple different ways. Uh, I can give you a couple of examples. You mentioned North Carolina, so I can talk about that one. Um, so what they would do is they'd have, they'd be able to, uh, figure out what the long-term erosion rate is at uh, different points along the coast. And they actually use the same kind of method. They have these monuments and then they, they can do, um, either that or they use the vegetation line and they can come up over time and, and, and see how much the shoreline has, has eroded. Um, and then they can compute a, a a long-term erosion rate. Let's say it's uh, 10 feet a year or something like that. Um, then what they will do is say, okay, let's let's multiply that times the, I think in North Carolina it's 40 years, in South Carolina it's 30 years, and I think that's got to do with the mortgage thing you were talking about, 30 or 40 years, and then they they multiply that and they say, okay, that's how far back you have to set back from the, the what they call the baseline, which is usually like the front primary dune or the vegetation line, and what that's doing is buying you um, buffer really for you know. The idea is you want to have a good dune system uh, and natural uh, dunes and, and sand uh, system in front of you to protect you from storms. And if you're built right up onto the beach, you know you're gonna you're not gonna benefit from that protection. So if you're setting back, the the point is you have all that land, um, property to potentially help you, uh, you know, protect against storms. And the idea is if you do get damaged beyond a certain percentage and it depends by the state, but sometimes it's 50% or 66 and two thirds percent damage, then you have to remove that and build back farther. Now there are other, um, there's been issues with, you know, takings lawsuits and there's special permits that can be applied for and things like that. So there's always a special case, but the whole point is to try to regulate so that when we building, when we're building back, we're kind of migrating with the erosion. Um, right. A lot of times though, what happens is you have these erosion hotspots. It's not the same everywhere along a beach. Uh, one part of the beach, because the typical worst places are near these inlets, coastal inlets where um, water, the tidal water is going back and is exchanging with the ocean going into the back estuaries. Well, can, and, confirming, confirming that point, Doug, um, the particular properties I was thinking of in North Carolina, are quite near the opening into an inlet into an estuary, and and uh, and you're right; those those are the areas that I would guess there are so many factors in play that it might be really hard to pre- predict what the future will be there. It is, they, um, 
if you study uh, coastal geology, you, you look at the inlets, the dynamics of inlets are very dynamic. Um, change every year, every storm event um, can really change the system. And what used, you know, some areas that used to be stable shoreline, um, the next year will be uh, have high erosion rates, and that's because these sandbars come on shore and they protect for a while, and then they got to go away. And if if you ever look at uh, like time lapse, uh, there's a great site that Google has. I think it's called the Google Earth Engine, and, and it does a uh, time lapse of Landsat imagery going back to the 80s. And if you look, zoom in on some of the barrier islands, uh, you can really see these these uh, bars come weld themselves to the to the island, and then they go away. And it's just really a dynamic moving system. It's just, it's uh, really neat to see. Um, kind of gives you a perspective. Why are these areas so, uh, you know, dangerous, uh, risky to de- develop? Because they are, they really are changing. Well, and, and the changes that, that are wrought over time come with them some interesting rights and in, in cases. For example, uh, one of my former clients owns a lot of property at the north end of Padre Island, uh, where uh, there once was a pass that went through all the way uh, to Corpus Christi Bay and north of that pass was called Mustang Island. And, uh, and, and, uh, and, and over time, it didn't go all the way through. It got filled in on the, uh, on the Corpus Christi Bay side. Well, somehow they ended up getting the rights to reestablish that pass, um, you know, as if that pass always had a right to be there, as if that pass always would be there. And they dredged it out, and it was a huge advantage for uh, uh, for the particular site uh, to do that. But in a way, it was you know that the existence of that pass was just a moment in time. And uh, uh, yet, yet, when when something like that happens, our legal system establishes rights for pretty much anything that's a, a moment in time. Uh, yes, actually, that's that's very true because when we do parcel mapping. Uh, for instance, uh, you know, we go out and say, okay, this is your land and you have your parcel and you get your plat, uh, you know, printed out and it gets put into the, into the tax office. Um, yeah, it's pretty much a concrete line, although, you know, on paper, that's just the coordinates <laughs> of where your land is. And then but mother nature does what they want, what, what she wants at the coast. We had the same issue. Um, a, a good, another example, uh, closer to where I'm from, our office is in Charleston, South Carolina, and just, South of Charleston is a uh, island called Kiowa Island, and then the island to the south of that is Seabrook Island. There's a small inlet called Captain Sands Inlet, and that inlet is very dynamic, and it has it, it continuously migrates south so that the Kiowa Island is accreting, and then it's impacting the north side of, of Seabrook. And so every so often they go back and they cut through and reestablish where the inlet used to be, uh, to try to reduce some of the erosion, it's 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 like we're we're kind of trying to fight against Mother Nature, um, and there's properties that uh, going to what you were just talking about. There's properties that people still own that are underwater in some of these near these inlet areas. I think that's true up in North Carolina. They're eventually someday when they when the sand comes back, they theoretically have claim to that property. Um, it's it's definitely an interesting. Uh, kind of uh, clash between you know nature versus what we want to try to keep as a our stakes in the sand so to speak well and it's been around for generations because i i grew up in boston and uh, 
there the uh, uh, Boston Globe used to have on Sundays in, in the separate comic section back when there was a separate color comic section. They would have always some ad for buy this land in Florida. And, uh, and you know, somebody reading the paper would always joke to, to, uh, to me, you know, something like, yeah, like it's underwater or something. <laughs> well, you know, that notion of, of planting uh, underwater or, or um, uh, I guess, uh, you know, just, just land that is at times underwater, at times not underwater, uh, has, has really been around for a, for a few generations. That, and apparently they had some, some buyers of properties like that over time, too. And, and, and now, now you're, you know, if that's the only piece of Ki- uh, Kiowa, Kiowa Island, Kiowa, yeah. it's the only, if, if it's a the only piece you can afford and get then that's the one you get and you hope your grandchildren get to use it uh, because by then maybe it'll have surfaced again um, the, the but i i, I sort of stopped feeling <laughs> <laughs> yeah like actually we're not trending in that direction uh, at all um the um uh, actually if we could if we could resume your your thoughts on different types of uh of NOAA data sets that we could get access to if, if you have something. You mentioned the, the National Geodetic uh, Survey aerial data, and and that is on, is that sporadically online? Or I have a note here that it was online after Dorian so that you could see where where, where the, the results of Dorian, um, uh, what what Dorian rock. Um, what what uh, what is what is that is what is that that website and is it always there? It is, um, and it's the uh, National Geodetic Survey NGS NOAA NGS, and they it, they actually um, we have an agreement with uh, through with FEMA so that they FEMA provides uh, what we have what's called a prescripted mission assignment. So after an event like Dorian or a major hurricane or storm or even flooding event. Um, NOAA gets tasked to go fly and take aerial photography that's geo-rectified uh, of the coast uh, coastline that's impacted. And that is available through, it's post-disaster imagery. Uh, it's available through uh, NOAA NGS. It's just ngs.noaa.gov. And um, you can access that. It's, it's really good. It's useful for uh, doing post-storm damage assessments, uh, looking at things potentially for, for high, high water marks. Um, and uh, how high did the water get? So you can see debris lines and areas where you can concentrate on going out and doing a damage assessment. Um, it's a good way to, to, from the air, using remote sensing, you don't actually have to get out there on the ground and, and assess. You can kind of do a, a triage, if you will. And I think that's why FEMA likes to do that. Where do we need to go send our resources and folks? To, where's the worst hit area? Oh, that's interesting. So that's a decision tool for them, but it's a it's a long-term tool for anyone that, that lives there or wants to buy there. Absolutely. Yeah. And it, it gets up online pretty quick uh, and it's georectified. People can go in and look and see if, if their home has been impacted um, in some cases before they can actually even get onto the Island, let's say. Um, but it's also a way to, uh, you know, to initially see what, what the damage is. And if there are things like we were just talking about new coastal inlets to get cut through happens a lot on barrier islands, especially, uh, the Outer Banks, you'll have uh, the hurricane surge. The, when the water is actually returning back from the estuary back out to the ocean, sometimes it blows these inlets, new inlets. Um, sometimes they close them, sometimes they leave them open. Um, but that you can get an, a, an assessment looking at the photography where these areas are. Um, and then another uh, data set I, that, that gets used a lot is that you do a pre 
if there happened to be a, a elevation data set that was done, this is a good example is Hurricane Sandy. Um, uh, after Sandy, there's a lot of times after uh, major disasters, there'll be what's called a, a supplemental and the, the government will, uh, the president will ask for, you know, supplemental funding. Congress would approve that. Um, I guess just recently we, we got supplemental funding for Hurricane Maria and, and Irma. Um, Sandy was the same way. So there was supplemental money and a lot of, some of that went to uh, USGS and NOAA to collect elevation data, LIDAR, after the storm. So we could do a pre-storm elevation data set and a post-storm data set. And then you can, you can basically subtract the two and see where we lost uh, volume of sand and how the barrier islands have changed and then how ultimately the elevations have changed. And that affects tools like our mapping tool that does sea level rise. We have a sea level rise viewer. Again, we're using the best available elevation data set we can, and then we're using projected sea level information and, uh, and showing people what could potentially be inundated up to 10 feet above uh, kind of average high tides. Um, we would go back and update our elevation data uh, and, and remap based on the, the newer data because if the coastline has changed, that's going to impact you know the area that could potentially be flooded. So, and the beauty of Sandy too is that not the beauty of it, but the the beauty of, of data from Sandy is that that hit primarily a whole different part of the coast, um, you know, up up toward uh, the northeast, uh, as as well as as the southern. Now, back if I could circle back to your points uh, about monuments and establishing um, um, land uh, elevation and such. Um, on on those data points, um, do you? Do you essentially do the the whole uh, coastline, uh, at least the eastern coastline, from you know the Canadian border down and around the Gulf, with um, with that, or, or is, is it is that something that it's a little bit like triage? You only focus on the areas that tend to have the greatest amount of change. Well, the National Spatial Reference System is a, as I mentioned, is a net network around the country of of these benchmarks. Uh, a lot of times, also oh, it's in, it's inland as well. Oh yeah, yeah. So everywhere you go, there's uh, there's that's tied in. So every state would have a, a geodetic advisor and a state level, a geodetic person, and they're respect, responsible for maintaining their own um, geodetic network. And that ties in because of the standards we have in place for a monument to be set for certain accuracies that can be tied in. Now, at for for the tidal stuff, uh, we the the tidal data. Um, gauges we have um, the Enlon stations. There's over 200 plus stations around the um, the coast, around the U.S. coast. Those have specific benchmarks that tie into the sort of the terrestrial network, and that kind of ties the coastal datums to the to the what's called an orthometric datum. So around the gauges, there'll be a series of benchmarks. Um, so we maintain those, but there's a, it's definitely a network of. Uh, partnership with state advisors and these these networks that um, tie into this entire system. Now, that said, I, I mentioned we're trying to modernize that system. And so we'll eventually be going away from these individual locations with these disks uh, that get tied into more of a, a gravity-based um, model uh, called, called GravD. And that's going to be more dynamic because uh, we're actually now using the the beauty of it is we're using better technology. We're using GPS technology and what's called continuously operating reference stations that monitor the location of specific 
specific location over time. And so we can tell even to the degree of how fast the plates are moving, the North American plate versus the Pacific plate and how that will change not only our horizontal datum, but eventually our, our vertical datum too. So, so you, you, you'll, you'll know when a new mountain range is born. That's right. Well, <laughs> someday. The American Shoreline Podcast Network and CoastalNewsToday.com are brought to you by LJA Engineering. With 28 offices along the Gulf Coast, the folks at LJA Engineering are at the top of the craft in the areas of coastal restoration, coastal infrastructure, rivers and channels, numerical modeling, disaster recovery, and design and construction oversight. Be sure to check out their brand new Coastal Resilience Department, headed up by ASPN's own Peter Ravella. Find them at lja.com. Be sure to subscribe to the Coastal News Today Daily Blast newsletter at coastalnewstoday.com for daily updates on the events and news that shape the coastal discussion. Want to support the discussion and promote your company? We have sponsorship packages available now. Email me to learn more at chloe at coastalnewstoday.com. That's C-H-L-O-E at coastalnewstoday.com. Hope to hear from you and enjoy the show. Well, you know, it is a fluid situation, too. So I wonder if you um, – is there that kind of um, – uh, is there that kind of, you know, data collection on the ocean bottom as well? I mean, how do we – because I would guess knowing the shape of the of the water or of the underwater surface, uh, all the way under the water, uh, knowing that shape would help us project what sort of forces hydrologically would drive storms or drive things in different directions. Is, is, that, is that something that NOAA does too? I mean, do you map uh, the, uh, the Atlantic or the Gulf? We map, yes, actually, the, um, the National Ocean Service has another component, another, I guess it would be a sister office, called the Office of uh, the uh, Coast Survey. And are you probably familiar with seeing the, the white NOAA ships with the, the NOAA logo on there? They, they go out, and um, we have several survey vessels that actually go out and collect bathymetry, uh, and that gets transferred to the nautical chart. So the, it's all part of that coast and geodetic survey I was mentioning 200 years ago when Jefferson uh, started it, uh, mapping the coast. We have a mandate to uh, keep the nautical charts updated, so we're constantly collecting bathymetric information and putting it on the charts. And that data actually oh, can be that's, used. That's a new word. It's a good one. Bathymetric. Is is that like bathysphere, the kind of submarine that goes underwater? Yes. Yep. Bathymetry, bathymetry is the is the underwater equivalent of topography, if you study back in I, I have not. So bathymetry is the underwater equivalent of Topography. Uh, topography. That's, topography that's, that's, is like topographic cool. data is is basically the elevation of the land surface. Bathymetry is basically the elevation of the of the subaerial or, or the underwater, uh, and that can be applied not just to marine but also lakes too. Well, I'm I'm glad you said that. Let me come back to that in a second. Uh, but the uh, but the whole. Um, but I would guess that, you know, your fisheries units are also studying, the, you know, using that data, um, bathymetric data, uh, I've got to use the word, uh, uh, to, uh, to actually understand where fish populations might be able to migrate to over time, um, because you'd have to have a certain depth for those fish uh, to live in, I would guess, some populations. Um, so that's that's kind of cool. Now back to the, when I said when you when you mentioned the word lake, the thing that got my attention was third lake uh, was we call ourselves the third coast. I know uh, 
the Gulf does too, but up here in the Midwest very often we hear the term third coast with the five Great Lakes. Um, how much how much documentation do you collect on the Great Lakes? And, I, and let me preface that by saying I'm asking because uh, Lake Michigan has hit some record highs uh, and uh, and we are actually having some erosion where a um, number of ho- uh, houses along the lake uh, have uh, have fallen into Lake Michigan as a result of eroding bluffs uh, along the lake. And, uh, uh, and we've already had a lot of, frankly, a lot of beaches disappear uh, simply because the water level is up. Is that something that is also tracked? Because it's not quite as dramatic as, uh, as a hurricane issue. Uh, or something along the Carolinas, Georgia, or um, or other coastlines, Virginia and Maryland. But but for us up up here, it's it's kind of cataclysmic when uh, when we lose our beach. Absolutely, um, yeah. I think it's just as much of an issue on the Great Lakes. And by the way, yes, the Great Lakes are part of the Coastal Zone Management Program. So um, the the states along the Great Lakes are 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 part of those Coastal Zone Management Program. Um, so yes, we have, we actually have offices up there, uh, and folks working on the issue. Um, NOAA does provide bathymetry information for the Great Lakes. Some of it is, is fairly old. We don't do as much, we don't have as many ship resources there. Um, but we rely on partner agencies for places that are critical, like, uh, the Corps of Engineers does surveying of all their, all the, uh, navigation channels, for instance. And when they do that, or they're changing or doing a dredging project, they give us the, they send that data to NOAA. We put that on the nautical charts. Um, so, but we also monitor the water levels over time. We have a great lakes, uh, uh, environmental research lab called Glural up there in Michigan. And they, uh, have a group that has studied, uh, the long term average water levels of the great lakes over time, each lake, um, uh, there's a there's a great website. They have a water level dashboard. You can go look on. So look up Great Lakes water level dashboard, and you can see all of the lakes and how they've changed their elevation of the water level over time. And they have some climatology stuff in there too. And, and I know there have been some. I was going to say I think there are some interesting trends too. Where uh, right now there's a question as to whether Lake Michigan and Huron might actually back flood into Lake Superior. Uh, because the water levels, uh, which, you know, are the result of a lot of things, you know, I guess evaporation versus inflow. Uh, and we've had a lot of a lot of rainwater inflow into the Great Lakes in the last year or two, uh, or at least into these Great Lakes of Michigan and Huron. So that will, uh, but I don't think they've had as much effect in uh, Lake Superior. So we may actually have backflow where we hadn't in the past. I hadn't heard of that. I, I do know that uh, Michigan and Huron are... Um are kind of considered one lake because they there there really isn't a barrier between them, so they kind of maintain the same level. But I do know all the lakes are, are high right now. We actually built back in uh, I think 2014. We got uh, some money through the uh, Great Lakes Restoration Initiative to build what's called a lake level viewer. Um, you can just Google that, but it's just coast.noaa.gov/llv for lake level viewer. Um, and we spent a lot of time collecting the best available topography and bathymetry. In this case, uh, we're mapping not only what happens if lake levels are high, which they are right now, but when we actually developed this tool, it was there were record lows back in like 2013. So we mapped plus six and minus six feet above and below the long-term average lake level. So the user can go in and see 
what does plus six feet look like? And we actually have the current water level on there we're getting from the, the Glural folks. Uh, so you can see what current water level is and you compare that and see what the current status. We have some a few data gaps here and there because it's, it's relying on, I mentioned LIDAR earlier. There's a LIDAR technology that allows us to try to see through the water down to the uh, ocean or lake bottom. If the water's clear enough, we can shoot a laser down and, and get the elevation of the, of the land underwater. Uh, and that can be used to build what, what we call a digital elevation model, a seamless model, topo, we call that a topobathy combined model. And that allows you, that allows you to see during low levels of, of, of low lake levels, what land is gonna emerge and this gets back to when is, if you had property there, maybe now it's exposed and you can build on it, but maybe you don't want to because two years later, it could be underwater again. Um, that, that, that's actually happened up here. Uh, in a lot of cases, there are uh, lands that appear and disappear, and uh, there are some terrific uh, Indian myths associated with it. And, and I, I do, you know, as far as, you know, if you were a Native American living here several hundred years ago, you'd have to make sense of the world around you in so many different ways. Um, and, and, and when you see something pop up in a lake, it's like, huh, there's gotta be a story behind that. So you gotta, you gotta, you gotta come up with one. One, well, I, I also wanted to bring up the Great Lakes simply because, um, I think, and when you said plus minus six feet, I, I think a lot of folks, um, along the, uh, uh, you know, I'll say the Eastern seaboard at the Atlantic coast and the Gulf and the Pacific coast might think of, of these, uh, the Great Lakes as, you know, just giant puddles of fresh water and oh we'd like to get access if we could i know arizona would um <laughs> the, uh, the 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 reality is is that there is a fair amount of fluctuation uh, for these lakes as well and it and it, and it can have a, a lot of local ramifications absolutely um, it, is, it isn't it isn't as you know i i mean it, it is severe sometimes but it isn't as severe as is what we're talking about uh, well the, the there's probably a, a limit to how high the water levels can get but yeah one, one thing that's uncertain i've seen the lakes are, are and i learned a lot about the great lakes on this particular project i'm not from that region and i hadn't studied um the dynamics of them but did learn that you you also have impacts from storm events they have a what's called a sash effect that's right yeah it's the tsunami the lake version of a tsunami is a sash yep and um like specifically, uh, Lake Erie is probably the most vulnerable because of the the winter storms come through, and with a long fetch, it piles the water up on the the northeast side of the of the lake, and they can get six to eight feet of water. So that it is very dynamic. But what's going to happen with climate change is it's still pretty uncertain with the Great Lakes. They don't they don't the climate models don't seem to be giving us a signal whether they're going to continue to rise or or fall uh, with with increased climate because what you Increased heat will cause more evapotranspiration, which would mean lower water levels, but then you may have more precipitation and snowpack, which would raise the water level. So I guess it's back and forth trying to figure out what's going to happen. It's, it's still perplexing scientists. So It, 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 is, it is that, but, uh, but one thing that would um, mitigate too much rise in Lake Michigan principally is that the um, uh, is that the watershed for Lake Michigan actually doesn't go that far inland? Um, in fact, uh, in in the city of Chicago, the the you, you don't have to go that far to the west far west side, and you're almost you're almost in the Mississippi watershed at that point. So you know, so much of the phenomenal weather we had, um, extreme weather we had over the summer, uh, further in the mid further west in the Midwest. 
uh, did not directly impact us because that was that was meant for the Mississippi and and, and therefore uh, it, it impacted New Orleans and Louisiana um, in general and well, Mississippi. That had a big impact on the uh, the hurricane season because the I think it was Barry Tropical Storm Barry or um, turned out to be Hurricane Barry was there was a real issue because very late in the season the Mississippi was in flood stage um, usually. By the time you have hurricanes, it's usually starting to subside, but they were dealing with uh, the possibility of the levees in New Orleans breaching because of the high water levels in the Mississippi, in addition to the surge coming up the Mississippi River. The storm surge can travel up the Mississippi as far as Baton Rouge and beyond. So um, we actually have models, uh, the, the Weather Service has models that try to take the storm surge predictions and then they put that into a river model and try to project how is that surge going to impact the, the flow coming down and how, how that's going to impact the water level so we combine you, you know that's where, go ahead, sorry so anyway that's where we were we're getting projections potentially right up to the, the the height of the levees it didn't turn out as bad as they had predicted but um the possibility was there let's let's just say that a lot of people were nervous <laughs> That interaction, that interaction of of, of uh, I'll say an estuary and a river, or uh, is 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 seen every day in um, uh, in the Hudson, for example. Uh, um, I've been up at uh, meetings at uh, at West Point, and I've watched uh, um, the uh, the tide push uh, blocks of ice in the winter upriver, uh, contrary to you know what should be happening. So I think, um, and and I would imagine that that kind of uh, possible to some degree catastrophic uh, interaction could also happen with a uh, with uh, the Chesapeake or with other very large um, estuary and areas yeah it can uh, the Hudson's a little bit unique in that it's just a very such a deep river channel that the, the tide signature doesn't attenuate so it's very interesting that you go all the way up to the Albany Dam they have a four foot tidal range there same as it is at the battery in new york <laughs> so that's great so i've been great enough sort of fascinating way yeah now that the, the shallower estuaries like the the uh chesapeake it's not as pronounced but yeah it definitely gets impacted the shallower it is the the the, the tide wave will attenuate a little bit but certainly the farther up these estuaries you go water gets pushed up with the within you know um depending on the wind direction we can see really high water levels. A good example of that was Hurricane Florence and the Pamlico Sound, where uh, the Noose River comes in near New Bern, North Carolina. The winds were pushing the water right up, at, right up towards New Bern for such a long period of time. It just it kept rising and rising, and then they had water from from a lot of precipitation with uh, with Florence as well, and that just caused record flooding there. Well, that 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 um, that actually, you've given me something I didn't know before there too, and that and that the uh, uh, the ability of of, uh, of water uh, phenomenon or ocean water phenomenon to move inland uh, is rooted in how deep the uh, the estuary is. And with Pamlico, um, if I'm not mistaken, I think uh, Elizabeth, uh, North Carolina, is on Pamlico Sound, and that has for uh, for uh, I don't know, probably half a century or more been a major uh, Coast Guard installation, and and it's been that because of the depth of the water uh, in Pamlico Sound, because it's good for them, but it's also good for this kind of phenomenon. Hey, one thing I did want to touch on with you also, two things actually, one was uh, was how your data is used, and, and I think uh, two of the 
you end users I had mentioned to uh, um, uh, once uh, was uh, the uh, Union of Concerned Scientists and the other was First Street Corporation. And not so much for what their products are, though that's interesting. And, and if you don't mind talking about those, that would be great. But, but, uh, but I think just the idea that um, people downstream, if you will, are, are using your data sets um, with their own algorithms to make projections about uh, the impacts of, of uh, ocean trends and such on, on land. Um, it, do could you comment a little bit on on first first read and and union of concerned scientists because I think they circle back to our notion of risk. Sure, absolutely, and, and those are not the only two. There's uh, a lot of uh, not only uh, in those cases. Uh, I guess union concerned scientists is more of an, an NGO or non um, governmental organization, and then first street for profit, and then there's others. Uh, there's risk consulting. There's a lot of these companies now that are coming online to try to provide like more uh, personal uh, risk assessment. And um, there's, there's other groups like Climate Central. We've actually shared all of our elevation data with uh, for them to build their surging seas application so we can keep the data consistent and, and they value add. So NOAA, we, we provide a lot of the fundamental data sets. I was mentioning the elevation data. We do the sea level rise mapping. We do the projections. And then that data can be used uh, by folks like First Street. They have a, uh, uh, an application called uh, Flood IQ. They bring in our sea level rise data. They bring in uh, storm surge risk information from the National Hurricane Center. And they, uh, they can try to project, I think in their site, they're actually looking at potential property value uh, loss. I know Zillow is another agent, uh, group that's been using our data to project how many homes are going to be impacted by sea level rise in the future, and what what's the dollar? I never would have guessed Zillow because uh, every month or two I get a an email from Zillow telling me how much my house is supposed to be worth. I never, and I'm in <laughs> no, they're really they're they're doing that. They they've actually used our data sets. Uh, you said uh, Union Concerned Scientists. They've been doing some some really good studies on. Uh, this it, this idea of high tide flooding, which is that the the high tides are starting to impact areas more and more and when is it going to be so much that we're going to have what we call permanent inundation uh, and how is that going to affect you know access to you know uh, not only for businesses and but for transportation to the, the getting in and out of these cities and for emergency services and, and things like that we have uh, our data has been used and many times for other agencies too so Department of Energy uh, for instance uh, looking at the the uh, vulnerability of, of the nuclear installations uh, to, to sea level rise. The EPA is looking at their point source uh, pollution outfalls that, that are mapped. How many of those are going to be impacted? Let me interrupt you for a second, too, on the, the, um, on the, uh, on the matter of the uh, Department of Energy. Uh, there was some work done by, uh, by Blackstone uh, earlier this year in which they uh, projected something ridiculously high, like 20 or 25 percent, and I could be wrong on that, but I think it was that high of our um, power supply in the U.S. is vulnerable to uh, to extreme weather or to, mm -hmm. to various storm situations, or rather to uh, to water, uh, to sea level rise. And and I, I, I know that that has become a, a major issue for a lot of industries for which there's a need for continuous power, whether we're talking about a, a hospital or some sort of uh, uh, you know biology lab uh, where they need to mm -hmm. always have power or they lose you know years of work. 
Um, but anyhow, I don't mean to interrupt you. Go ahead with some of the other ones. Well, I, I was just going to say that the, the tools I've been mentioning, one is our sea level rise viewer. It's uh, coast.noaa.gov slash SLR for sea level rise. Um, a lot of our tools, we have a visualization component, which is a nice map that you can go in and interactively start to see what the impacts might be. But the, the, the key for us is we provide the data behind that. So people can go in and download the, the elevation data, the, the inundation mapping data. Uh, we provide a lot of resources to where to go look for projection information. And then we also, for GIS users, provide what's called map services so they can pull our layers into their GIS. We don't have the capacity at a national organization like NOAA, a federal agency, to to get really locally specific uh, data in there, like you know local roads and all of the the building information and stuff. Can't do that nationally; it's just too hard. So, great example of this is the state of New Jersey uh, working with Rutgers University and the, the Jacquesteau National Estuarine Research Reserve. They were able to build what's called the New Jersey Flood Mapper. And they're using all of the data we provided in there, but then they can they can add their local data sets. They can add their flood insurance rate map information. And we actually provide the source code to our viewer, to other folks too, and they can take that and, and build their own viewer with their own local data based on these national data sets. And that's a great uh, sort of model for us because everybody was initially, we're like, well, can you put our data in there to make it more locally specific? And like, I would love to do that for you, but if I do that for you, I have to do it across the country. We just can't handle that. So we try yeah, to that makes sense. let people get to our data, but we also provide a lot of technical assistance on how to how to use the data, and we try to inform. Uh, I'll give you an example here in Charleston. They're developing their they're developing a sea level rise strategy, trying to help them come up with okay, what projections should we be using, um, and and how can we. Uh, how can we best use the, this NOAA science? And, and to, at some level, they need a, uh, someone to explain how the, the latest science can be can be brought in and, and used. And that, I guess, would be called actionable science versus just straight up uh, academic science. <laughs> well, before we started this podcast, you and I talked for a couple of minutes, and one of the uh, one of the stories that I had told you was I live in the neighborhood that is the highest point in Chicago, which again, you know, I, I think I used the uh, probably um. On PC analogy of saying, you know, it's like we're saying we're the tallest dwarf because Chicago is so flat and level anyhow. But nonetheless, I live in the high in the neighborhood with the highest, uh, the highest everything, and it's also the highest storm sewer system. Um, but the problem is, is that when we had some extreme weather, um, the storm sewer here in my neighborhood was unable to get that water out of the neighborhood. It just didn't have the capacity, so uh, the water went a third of the way up my lawn. Um, which made for a really green lawn about two weeks later, but uh, it's all fresh water. Uh, but uh, but the uh, but the but the other side of it is, you know, if it, it, it is that I would not show up on any map as being a risky area, uh, and, uh, and and that and and I mentioned too that one of my uh, nephews in New Orleans. Uh, went through something like that, and actually he's gone through it twice now, uh, where uh, where the storm water uh, uh, dispersal system or whatever is not unable to get the water out of the neighborhood. Um, and I think you had you had a, an angle on Charleston too that you were just starting to talk about. Exactly. Yeah. The, the um, of course in Charleston it's it's salt water, and so our grass dies. <laughs> um, but um, actually, it's a combination of of the two. Um, we, we're seeing. Uh, Charleston, obviously, very flat. Uh, a lot of our East Coast coastal cities are, are 
pretty flat uh, Boston, uh, Norfolk, uh, you know, even, even parts of DC, uh, Miami. Um, and, and so what we're starting to see is the, the stormwater systems in these flat uh, coastal cities were never designed to handle seawater coming in. Um, they didn't take into account rising sea levels. So they built a, a stormwater system that was designed to handle a certain amount of, of fresh water coming in from rainfall. And they usually design it for maybe the 25-year storm event. Well, we're seeing increases in extreme events. Um, that's one of the things in the National Climate Assessment points out, that the extreme events, extreme precipitation events are increasing in a lot of parts of the country. Climate change is going to be the, the wetter areas are going to get wetter and the drier areas are going to get drier. That's what I like to tell people. It's going to be more extreme, not just um, one way or the other. So the word extreme really, really applies here. It's, you know, one gets whatever you are, you're going to be more of that. Yes, for the most part, for the most part. And, um, and, and so what we're seeing is what, what used to be handled, an event that used to be handled just fine by the stormwater system and no flooding. Now we have high tides that are, we have a foot more water in Charleston from sea level rise than we did back in the 20s. Wow. Um, at, well, for the last 100 years, about a foot of water. And then, and then we also have had um, more extreme rainfall. So when, that, when the two happen at the same time, the water can't drain. So most of the stormwater systems are based on a gravity-fed system, which means you have to have some slope on it. And when, when you have water in the pipes already from sea level, or high tides, then the water can't drain out, and it just causes a lot more flooding. So what Charleston's been doing is actually uh, a drainage pro project where they're building a huge tunnel underground, 140 feet underground. They're, they're developing a huge tunnel, and they have these drain shafts up to the surface, draining the water off of places like Market Street, uh, and then pumping that out th uh, into the, the rivers, using a pump station. So it's similar to what New Orleans is, has been doing over, uh, because they're below sea level, they have to do this every day. They have to pump yeah, every water. Every rain has to go somewhere. Exactly. So so this is becoming an issue um, that hasn't been addressed. So one of the things we've been working on is, is try to, uh, we have a, a tool we developed that's, that it deals with this idea of stormwater at the coast. How do we deal with stormwater when we have rising sea levels? And so I've been working locally with the Charleston city of Charleston folks, they're updating their stormwater manual uh, and they're trying to figure out what projections of sea level do we need to put in there so that new development, when it comes in, we can, we can try to prevent that. They're putting backflow preventers on a lot of the stormwater outfalls that that's helping. Um, but a lot of the problem is we have older systems that are, are, you know, collapsing their old archways, brick archways and things underneath it, the city that have to be retrofitted and, uh, all of this is going to cost a lot of money. And, and the question is, you know, with, with big cities like Charles or, you know, mid-sized cities uh, and the bigger cities, they have the tax base to do this. But the, the smaller communities, you mentioned Elizabeth City, places like that that are smaller, are they going to be able to have the tax base and the, and the funding to try to, to try to retrofit a lot of this? That's an interesting question. Well, this, well, this, this also circles back to, uh, uh, to the podcast with, uh, with Mary Ludgan of Heidman. Um, uh, uh, last month in that in that she's trying to assess you know the climate uh, impacts on properties but one thing that she's discovering is she hasn't quite come up with the formula for how to um, how to how to pack into the value of her property whether or not it's a city that's woke and is doing something about 
about that, you know, as you're describing, Charleston is able to and is doing something about it. Boston is another city. But the result, the natural result is going to be that there are going to be higher taxes paid by someone. So if if you own property, you're very sensitive to your property taxes and other taxes uh, that you might pay in your property. But on the other hand, if you're paying higher taxes because your property is now going to be safer, then it can actually, if you pardon the expression, it can be a wash so that you know, the, the risk is lowered. So you might be willing to pay the higher taxes. Um, and, uh, uh, or you may be on a, on a, on a, for higher risk of property owners or uh, you might want, you might be willing to go to smaller cities where they can't afford that, but who are at the same risk, but where your property values might be lower, um, and you can still get the rent. So there's really kind of a curious set of economic algorithms running in the background here that I think will influence a lot of where development occurs and where different yeah. investment will occur occur as well because if you're if, if Charleston wasn't taking this course and I'm sure you, you hear this in the conversations here if Charleston wasn't taking this course it would put at risk a lot of high value property and it would put at risk a tourism industry that uh, Charleston has come to depend on uh, for uh, for both employment and income um, so uh, so so there there is a kind of a challenging um, set of uh, set of choices ahead for America's communities as well as for for you know owners. We have a lot of uh, historical significant buildings in, in Charleston as well that that are um, there's a lot of uh, historical preservation society for instance you know uh, lobby there to 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 keep these uh, the Civil War especially you know uh, artifacts and and Fort Sumter and all this uh, you know safe and and that's uh, there's a whole nother Part of you know the, the park service is actually National Park Service has been doing a lot of work on, on climate impacts to the to the national parks. Um, there's a lot of national parks that are, are at risk. The the Liberty the Statue of Liberty sitting right in New York Harbor, and uh, you know those kind of things. And uh, our national shorelines, um, uh, our national uh, you know sh- uh, sorry shoreline parks or whatever there that the Park Service uh, maintains. They've been doing a lot of work on that. I, the particular example for the one that stands out is moving the Cape Hatteras lighthouse. Uh, many years ago, they, they're having to start to move things back and um, basically deal with it. And that's really, you know, what adaptation is all about. Uh, we're going to have to adapt or our stuff's going to go underwater. <laughs> well, and, 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 you know, uh, uh, you, you bring in NPS, which National Park Service, which is, of course, a, a government agency also, or a sister organization for you. And they have things like the um, uh, Cape Cod National Seashore. They have a, a wonderful, already partially underwater um, uh, facility, or facility is not the right word, I guess, property down in um, uh, Biscayne Bay. Uh, and, 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 uh, and even here in uh, um, even here in the Midwest, uh, I was uh, over talking to the guy that runs uh, Indiana Dunes National Lake, a national park, which used to be a national lakeshore and is now like, the 61st or 62nd national park. And he was talking about the beaches situation that, that we referenced earlier, that uh, a cataclysmic situation when you lose beach, because even if you lose just a portion of it, you're losing capacity, which has been matched with parking and matched with expectations from the community to how many people can come in and park on a weekend. Um, and, uh, so there's uh, there are a lot of human factors to consider. I think we have probably gone over time, so I, I, I can't say how much I appreciate uh, your conversation this morning, Doug. 
and Doug, uh, Doug Marcy is from uh, NOAA, National um, uh, Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. He's been very, uh, very gracious in coming on uh, Next Gen Waterfronts today. Um, I'm Dan Martin uh, of MFA, and uh, if, uh, if you have any thoughts or questions, uh, reach back to us through the American Shoreline Podcast Network or ASPN. Uh, thanks very much, Doug. And Doug, did I miss anything that you wanted to convey today? No, I just want to say thanks for having me on. I've enjoyed the conversation and uh, and hopefully folks can go to some of the websites we mentioned. And if not, you can just Google uh, some of the things I mentioned. We, um, uh, hopefully our tools and data can be, continue to be used to inform uh, these critical decisions that are going to need to be made. I, I think that's I think that's a really excellent closing note, and that is the whole point of the show is to introduce you to websites and to uh, to data that NOAA has, uh, so that just like other groups that we mention, whether it's UCC, a nonprofit, or First Street Corporation, or others, uh, that, uh, that you can avail yourself of these resources and leverage them to uh, uh, to create the research and information that you need in, in, in your life, whether it's whether you're a city or a town, or whether you're an individual property owner. Thanks again. And uh, have a good day.